the beauty of that song is the sadness of our life. We are His portion. He is our prize. Who got the raw deal of that package? Thank you, God. And His love is absolutely so amazing. He lavished it on us. He poured it out with drops like blood. And I know that's gory and sick sounding, but it's the most precious ointment that we have. No other liquid can bring life like blood and cleanse us. The blood of Christ. I'm afraid though, so much of our life growing up in the Bible Belt, if you grew up here, growing up in American culture, is we, we, we have been so immersed in the Christian faith, whether we were just those poinsettia Christians or Easter lily Christians that we just popped in a couple times a year and you thought there were only two flowers ever shown in the church were Easter lilies and poinsettias. Uh, but, you know, that, if that was your makeup, you still had a basic understanding of what the message of the church was, is that God loved us. But I think the sadness is also that we take that love for granted. There's something about our consumeristic culture that we tend to take a lot of things for granted. We take our job for granted until we get that pink slip. And it blindsides us and it catches us completely off guard. And, oh, I now appreciate my job a whole lot more. We appreciate relationships until we wake up one morning and they're no longer. Whether that be a, through a marriage, whether that be through... Uh, through blood relations, and all of a sudden you didn't say goodbye to your relative that you intended and intended and intended to go by and see them, and all of a sudden they're gone. The relationship was taken for granted. Our character is even taken for granted. At times whenever we are making these fast-paced decisions in life, and, and all of a sudden we have this compromising situation, we think we'll blow through this, we'll make this decision, and we'll pick up the pieces later on, and it really won't be that big of a deal. And we compromise our character and our integrity, and we kind of take that for granted until it's no longer. And then we realize it took a lifetime to develop character and integrity and honor and reputation. And all of a sudden, in one decision, it's gone. We appreciate family and after they're gone. In 1960, 17% of children grew up in homes without dads. In 1990, it had grown to 36%. The family unit is priceless in God's economy. In thinking about this series of I Hope, coming to this Thanksgiving weekend, I thought, well, perfect weekend. I mean, this is like weeks weeks ago that I was working in this series. And it was like, okay, when we come to Thanksgiving weekend, what better to talk about than the family? How can we have hope in the family? And there was, a, uh, there was an entire sector of the family that I was not even taking into consideration. And it's the families that don't have families. It was the people 
who when it comes to Thanksgiving, they don't look forward to a big turkey spread at the table and football games in the afternoon and Christmas trimmings on, on Friday morning or shopping. On, they don't look forward to that because they don't have that family tie-in connection. And I thought, if we're going to talk about hope for the family, let's talk about hope for those who don't have a family. Those who would love to be accepted in love. Our society is only as strong as the family unit. Now think about that. You tell me where I'm wrong in that. You can go to a communist country. It's not a governmental system. It's not a bureaucratic system. It's not where the Democrats are in control or the Republicans are in control. It is the family unit. Where the family goes, so goes the society. And I'm going to stick my neck out on a limb here. And I'm going to say where the church goes, so goes the family. If the church isn't strong, if the church isn't calling families up, if the church isn't growing the families stronger, then who is? Hollywood? I don't think so. Who is going to infect the family? The Texas Department of Correction did a survey of all of its inmates found that 85% of their inmates grew up in homes where there was no deep religious convictions. As the society goes, so goes the family. Or as the family goes, excuse me, I reversed that. As the family goes, so goes the society. And the society is so much shaped and the family is so much shaped by how well the church speaks into the families. What is our role as families, as a family, as a church, to those who don't have families, to those who don't have parents, to people who don't have someone to love them and to care for them? Take your Bibles and be looking at James chapter 1, verse 27. James 1:27 is a very quick verse that we'll read, and it's just kind of a springboard into a bigger conversation that I want us to think about and have as a church and as families and as body life groups as a whole. And it's a very short verse. You could easily skip across it if you're not careful and miss it. But, but James, the half-brother of Jesus, speaks into a situation here and he shows us what real beauty in, of Christian faith is. And there it is. It's up on the screen. It says, religion is pure and undefiled before God, the Father. You want to look at what pure, what undefiled religion looks like? Visit the orphans and the widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. You want to see what the real stuff Christianity looks like? The real pure, real good stuff? Not, the, not that fake kind of plastic Christian faith. Not that pretend Christian faith. Not that get ahead in life. I'm going to become a part of the church because it's like a social club and get ahead kind of Christian faith. Let me show you the real stuff. The real stuff is when we look at orphans and when we look at widows and we keep our lives clean. That's the real stuff. And that verse kind of is, is, is pretty impactful when you think about visit the orphans. Well, I can go visit some orphans. Actually, when you go in, you break apart that word. The idea there is to look into their life, to visit with your eyes and your heart, and to literally peer into their life as if you become involved with your life, with their life, living life on life with them. 
Not just a token tip of the hat. Not just go work in an orphanage for a week. Not just go help out at Big Brothers Big Sisters for a day. Now, that may be a beginning point. But maybe it's not all. The word there, orphan, is the Greek word orphanos. And it means everything that we know it to mean. But when going on and studying the word orphanos this week, I found that, according to A.T. Robinson, that the word orphan there and the idea of orphan is not a person who doesn't have a father and a mother. A person could simply not have a father or a mother. And think about that. What does that look like in our culture? I always lumped it together that they don't have a father or a mother. But to even be missing one of God's ideal is not a healthy situation. And if you now take the Bible and you just go from cover to cover and begin to look at what does God say about orphans? Well, you go back all the way to Moses when Moses said this in Deuteronomy chapter 10. He said, For the Lord your God is the God of gods and the Lord of lords, the great and mighty and awesome God, executes justice, key word there, justice, for the fatherless and the widows. Executes justice for the fathers fatherless and the widows. Isaiah said it as a prophet. He said, learn to do good, seek justice. There's that word again. Correct oppression. Bring justice to the fatherless and plead for the widow's cause. Bring justice. Again, the word justice coming in. Again, the word fatherless or orphan comes into play here. What does that mean? What's this word justice? It means to do right, to make right, to bring up to par, to bring up to level. They, they're missing something. And we, as a church, bearing hope, can bring that something to them. You think, Mike, I don't live in a perfect home, and I wasn't raised in a perfect home. Neither was I. Neither was I. And we're not going to compare stories. Because I might be able to one-up you. But the point is this, is that we have got to Look into our culture from Moses to Isaiah to Jeremiah. Jeremiah was speaking in Jeremiah 7, 5 to 7 when he was speaking to the nation of Israel. And he said, God's going to bless your nation and keep your nation strong when you take care of the widows and the orphans. It was said of God in Psalm 68, verse 5, that he's the father to the fatherless. Does God have favorites? I'm going to say he does. He's going to take extra time and extra attention for the fatherless. To those who don't have somebody to speak truth and love and acceptance into their life. Even when Jesus was prophesying of his, of his imminent death and his, his future ascension into heaven, that the fact that he would be leaving his disciples alone, Alone, alone. He promised them that He would not leave them alone, but that He would send a comforter. Christ, our God, our Lord God, is a compassionate, loving God who doesn't want us to be alone. Doesn't want us to be fatherless. He says in John chapter 14, 18 and 19, He says, I will not leave you as orphans. It's as if God is saying, that could be the worst place I could leave you. Fatherless. Yet a little while, and the world will see me no. The world will see me no more, but you will see me. 
Because I live, you also will live. I want to tell you that this past week, Lori and I's world has been rocked a little bit through some series of events that I don't even have beginning enough time to tell you about. And I'll give more later. But recently I was, back it up even further, recently I was meeting with some of our members in our church that have a passion and desire to help people who don't have a whole family. That's about, I don't know what else to put it. They're not maybe orphans, or maybe they are orphans, or maybe they're in foster care system, or maybe they need adoption, or all this. And there's, there's been several families come to me and at different times and at different seasons. And, and it's, it's been exciting to hear the passion of their hearts. But it'll be honest with you, it wasn't my passion exactly. But that's okay. I don't have to have everything as my passion. And so here we are. We're, we're in this conversation. And we really hold that statement on the wall when you go out. Pretty important that every member is a minister and every ministry is meaningful. So it's kind of our, 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 our role as pastoral team is to equip you to do the work of the ministry that God has given you. So if you're passionate about X, then we want to help you do X. So first there's a family dealing with how can we help out in in the Arkansas Baptist Children's Home? How how can we help in the foster care system? Or how can we get networks of people adopting families? Because there's kids out there that just need good homes. Have another another family that works in the big brothers, big sisters. Just so many compassionate people in our church, and I'm thinking, you know what? We just need to get these minds together. And recently, Stuart Kearley, an attorney in the area, was speaking with me, and it's like all of a sudden, in, in an instant, a light bulb came on. I thought we just need to get these minds together because we've got all this talk and all these ideas, and and I can't bring it together because I don't know that it's not my passion. So maybe maybe they'll come in, in into the picture and kind of there'll be this chemistry and things will happen. So we've had some of those meetings and they've been very productive meetings. And Stuart is actually going to come and share in a few moments a little bit more about that. But back to Lori and I. This past. Uh, well, go back even further. When we lived in Africa, it's a family that lived with us, and he w- he worked with us. His name was Richard, and, and Richard was was a, was a dear friend. He worked in our backyard. He worked with me. he lived in our backyard. He he worked with me in ministry. He worked with me and kind of taught me how to live in Africa. And his children were about the same age as our kids, and so their kids would run in and out of our house together, and it was just one kind of family kind of atmosphere. And um, Ruthie was one of their names, and Memory was another one. In fact, we have a picture of their family whenever we were living there. I think we do. Uh, if a family pops up there, you'll know who they are. Um, this, uh, don't have it? Okay. Uh, Richard, in the process of this, contracted AIDS. That was from a previous lifestyle that he had before becoming a believer, and I literally have never seen anybody die of AIDS. It was my first exposure to this, and literally I watched him fade before my eyes to the point that when he got to the end of his life, he got to the end of his life, he, he requested that I take him back to his village so that he could die with his family. And that was kind of the customary thing, and then his family would take over his children at that, at that point. 
And so as we watched him basically fade away and pass away, uh, we took him in memory and Ruthie and Precious, his wife. We took them and we got them set up. We, we gave them as much money as we could give them. We got their kids in school and, and we left. And we got uh, a message a few months later that Richard had passed away. And that now memory and Ruthie, the two children, were now in a situation to where they were orphans. Now, Precious, the mother, was the mother of Ruthie. So in African culture, she just took her daughter and went and left memory alone. Well, the thing is, memory had lost, already lost her mother to AIDS. Now she has lost her dad to AIDS. And they're literally, she is, in the truest sense, an orphan. Well, at that point, we're finding, okay, we're still living there. We're finding, how can, what, what's going on? She's living with her uncle. Things will be okay. Well, we ended up leaving Zambia and thinking everything was okay in memory's life. And it wasn't until about three years ago that I was back with a team and we were doing some work on some churches in Livingston where we lived. And as, as that working along and so forth, all of a sudden, I don't even remember all the events that happened, but memory shows up at the work site. Now, do we have that picture? No, don't have that picture either. Next service, you come back for next service, we'll have it. Memory shows up. What a beautiful experience that was. She wouldn't let go of me. I wouldn't let go of her. She told me that actually she was not in a very good situation, that actually her uncle was abusing her which you can only begin to imagine in that culture what that may look like. And uh, I, I said, okay, what are your needs? And I gave her all the money I had to give. I gave it to her. I said, here's your school fees, here's your clothes, here's some food money, whatever. And that was it. Hadn't heard anything. We go to the movie the other night. We go see the movie Blindside. And I don't know if you've seen the movie. It just came out. But it's about this adoption story that unfolds. And as it unfolds, I can't watch the movie because I'm thinking of memory. Why didn't we adopt memory? Why didn't we? So Lori and I talk about it. And, we, of course, you know, memories in Africa, memories in Zambia, memories in the bush, for all we know. She can't. Why? We, there's no communication. There's no why. It's Friday night. What do you do when you have convictions like that that you just can't even imagine fulfilling or even contacting or even having any kind of update? You just roll over and go to sleep. And you hope God stops talking to you. We wake up Saturday morning. And Lori turns on her computer and she says, You'll never believe this. I have an email from memory. I want to read you this email. Because if you've ever wondered what an orphan child is thinking and the reality that they're living in, listen to this. Dear, my dearest Mr. and Mrs. McDaniel, happy are those who rejoice in the name of the Lord, the mighty God. Thank God. If you are still alive and happily living with your loving family, we lived... We lived with me. The chapter of life that you left me is not yet closed. From that time you left me, I was totally left as an orphan. And I was forced to write my exams without payment. I was so confused and desperate 
that forced me to go to the village where I discovered a relative to my dad's side. I thought maybe I had found refuge in my side of of life and that it had proved to be in vain. They could treat me as I was a slave to their family. To tell you the truth, I'm living a life of no strong roots, which is not safe, living like a nomad. You know that, McDaniel, I would like to see you or hear from you just to reverse my dad and mom's memory to my side. You are my dad and family. I will always sing in this catastrophe life I pass through. Now I wish we meet again and chat together and eat together with your whole family as one. My last saying is God bless you and your family together with your congregation. If I'm not here next week, I'm in Africa looking for somebody. And we'll try to bring her back. But I wonder how many other people would write of their catastrophe of life as they cry themselves to sleep. I am a child that no one hears, no one knows my wealth of fears. The only eyes that see my pain are the ones I trusted all in vain. from my core that someone hears me before. I was the child that no one here, no one knew my wonderful fears. The child that no one hears. Mike has already laid out for us as you look at the Bible, you look through all the way to the beginning, all the way through the end, this resounding theme. It's a theme of reconciliation, a theme of redemption. God desires to put all of us into his family. You know, I'm, I'm an attorney, and that's by my nature. I can always break things down. And as I've thought about this issue for the last several months, I've been praying about this and, and letting God speak into my life. Two things kept rolling through my head. You know, why, why is this so close to the heart of God? What, what is it about this? Why? Why does God desire to see us live as family? Psalm 68, 4 through 6. It'll be here in a minute. Sing praises to God and to his name. Sing loud praises to him who rides the clouds. His name is the Lord. Rejoice in his presence. Father to the fatherless, defender of widows, this is God whose dwelling is holy. God places the lowly, the lonely in family. 
inside a family unit. Why does God care so much about that? First of all, it's the nature of God. God is a triune God. God is family. God has, from before the beginning of time, existed as Father, Son, and Spirit. God desires for you and me to be a part of his family. It's, it's basic theology that we all kind of understand. We understand that God has chosen us to be his children, that by the sacrifice of his son on the cross, we can have eternal life. But it's really a story of redemption and adoption. Galatians chapter 4, verses 4 through 7. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. You know, that is the most beautiful thing, the redemption story, isn't it? The idea that the son of God would become the son of man. That he would suffer and die on the cross and rise again. So that you and I, the sons of men could become the sons of God. That is redemption. That is the entire gospel story in a nutshell. He desires to adopt us into his family. Well, what does that mean then? Well, that means that we are to live as family. Jesus said in Matthew 12, 48 through 50, he replied to him, who is my mother and who are my brothers? And then pointing to his disciples, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. So if we're going to be a part of his family, we have got to be about the family business. Our family business is about reconciliation. Our family business is about adding to the family. So what does that mean? Well, right now, worldwide, there are 143 million orphans in the world. If you take the population of the United Kingdom, Australia, Canada, Mali, Arkansas, Oklahoma, Missouri, and Kansas... 143 million around the world. Fatherless. Just like memory. Looking for someone to belong to. Looking for a place to fit in. A place to feel connected. A place to feel loved. A recent study among believers showed that over a third of churchgoers, a third of people who claim to have Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior, have prayerfully thought about and considered adoption. Yet, only 2% have actually acted on that and followed through on that. That's why there's 143 million. 500,000 currently in foster care in the United States alone. There are 150,000 waiting to be adopted right now. Parental rights have been terminated and they are in the state custody of Arkansas, Oklahoma, Louisiana, New York, California, or wherever. And they're waiting 
and they're hoping and they're praying for a family. The sad reality, if only one family, if only one family and one out of every three churches in this nation were to decide today we will go and adopt one of those children, they would all be adopted. One family and one out of three churches. What happens to these children? Every year, 25,000 age out of the foster care system. They become too old to stay in foster care, and they go out into the world, supposedly ready to conquer the world. Only 2% of those will ever obtain a college degree. 51% will be unemployed. 30% will live homeless at some point in time. 60% of those young women within four years will have a child. That's why we have places like Saving Grace and a the ministry there that we can partner with. Okay? Because they're not prepared because they don't have a family. And so they go and they make choices and they have to do whatever they have to do to get by because they're missing the family unit and the family connection. The numbers are staggering. You know, worldwide in Russia, those who age out of the foster care system in Russia, within three years, 60% of the girls will be engaged in prostitution, 70% of the young men will be engaged in criminal activity in, in the various Russian gangs. Why? Because they're looking for love and they're looking for a family. So the numbers are crushing. It's hard to fathom that. What, what do we do? I'm one person, one family. How do we fix this? How do we get involved? How can I engage in this? Well, it comes back to really the fulfillment of the first question of why. Why should we care? Because we're family. How? We live as family. We understand that church is meant to be family. We talk a lot of times about the church as the body, and it is, okay? But the most prevalent metaphor that is used throughout New Testament is that a family? We, we gloss over the word brother all the time. Okay, brothers and sisters, as Paul writes the, the epistles, it's not just a throwaway word. It's a description of church as a family. There are lots of ways for us as family to get engaged. There are what I call out here the strays. Not the true father, less in the sense that they've lost a parent and a parent has died, or both parents have died but just the absent parents. You know, some of you who are working out here in the various Planet Kids or the Wii World over here, you work each week with fatherless, children who are growing up without parents engaged in their life, children who are growing up looking for a place to be loved, a safe place to stay. If you have teenagers, you've got some kids in your neighborhood, some of your children's friends, Maybe they're on the soccer team or the volleyball team or the swim team or debate or band or whatever. And they like to come over and hang out at your house with your children because it's a safe place. And it's a loving place. How do we engage them? We function as family. 
I was one of those strays. Before I was a middle-aged bald man practicing law, I was a small little red-headed freckle boy in Camden, Arkansas. And for a variety of reasons, early on in my life, I got plugged into a church, but without my parents really being involved in that church. And they would take me and drop me off, and different church members would give me rides home. And as I grew up, I started riding my bicycle to church. One particular family took a very close interest in me, the Hudson family, and that's them on the left there, L.B. and Charlene. Mike, who's in my class, and then Larry to the right. That's a picture from about 1982-83, Larry's senior year in high school. And they loved me as family. They lived about well, a quarter of a mile from the church. I would ride my bicycle to church on Sunday. Sunday afternoon, I went to their house. I had Sunday lunch there at their house. I stayed there and ate their food and watched their TV, watched the football games. Larry and I just ran crazy. Went back to church with them that night, and then that night they'd throw the bicycle in the back of the truck and give me a ride home. They were family to me. They loved me, and they poured into me. They opened up their homes to this kid who was obnoxious, who cost them money, who ate their food, who took up their time, who slept on their couch, who started coming over on Fridays and staying all the way through the weekend. Get out of school on Friday night, go to the Hudson's, see you Sunday night. Lived there for the weekends. Taught me how to hunt, how to fish. Took care of the strays, those that are wandering through. The second man there on your right is a man by the name of Barry Baker. Again, the same kind of thing. Went off to college in Magnolia, poured into my life. A time when I could have gone a lot of different directions. A time when, in a very real sense, my life hung in the balance. Uh, just from some choices and some, you know, wrestling with depression. Poured into me, loved me. Again, many, many nights, I would be out at the baker's house, five miles away from the campus, hanging out with Barry and Ann. They had a three-year-old son at that time, Scott, when I first met him. And there would be a lot of nights. It would be 9 o'clock, 10 o'clock, and we'd be talking and say, instead of going back to the dorm room, that empty dorm room, because... You know, Magnolia was one of those suitcase colleges, Southern Arkansas University. Everybody packed up on Friday and went home, came back Sunday afternoon. So the dorms were kind of desolate. They'd say, no, why don't you just go here, sleep on the top bunk in Scott's room. You can go to church with us in the morning from here. They loved me. That kind of functioning of church's family leaves a legacy. Because this next slide, okay, it's a legacy that, leads when you pour into people and you invest in people. This young man is my middle son, or my middle child, my second son. His name? Hudson Baker Curley. Because these two families poured into me. They had literally adopted me into their life. Which begs the question, who am I loving with such a relentless love? Who am I pursuing? Who am I pouring my life into? Who is going to name a child for any of us because of our love for the strays, the fatherless, those who are outside the family?
there is 40 days left in 2009. 40 days is a time of significance in the Bible. 40 days of rain. The earth was flooded. The spies go into the land for 40 days and scout it out. 40 days is a time period that God uses to set aside people for preparation, to get them ready for something, get them ready for what's coming next. Moses spent 40 days on top of the mountain with God before he took the Ten Commandments back down. Goliath taunted the nation of Israel for 40 days. Nineveh had 40 days to repent after hearing Jonah's message. Jesus wandered in the wilderness for 40 days before beginning his earthly ministry, and after his death, he spent 40 days with his disciples, preparing them for life without him. 40 days left in 2009. And so what we're going to ask you for the next 40 days is to consider what God would have you to do. Across the front, we have these prayer guides. It's 40 days of prayer. What would God have you to do? How would he have you to engage the fatherless around us, the strays, those without homes? January 17th, this coming year, 2010, we at Grace Point are going to explore, we're going to mobilize, and we're going to engage. And we're going to find ways to plug in with a variety of ministries here. Big Brothers, Big Sisters, World Vision, Saving Grace. Maybe perhaps even an in-house adoption agency. Maybe we'll create our own adoption agency, an adoption fund. Lots of different ways for us as the body of Christ, for us as family, to pick up and carry out this call of God, the heart of God, caring for those My question really is this to you. Are you open? Because we're not asking you to sign up for anything today. Okay? We're going to do that in 2010. Are you open to considering what God would have you to do? Are you open to the possibility? No. There's going to be an accounting for all of us one day. I think we all think of that from time to time, hopefully a lot. And we're aware of it in our decision-making. But typically, we think of it in terms of, well, I'm going to account for my finances. I'm going to account for my time. I'm going to account for the things that I did wrong and shouldn't have done. We're also, I think, going to give an account of our spare bedrooms. We're going to give an account, I think, of our empty place settings. We have place settings for 12. We have seating for 8. And routinely, three and four, maybe five, gather around that table. There's going to be an accounting. Are you open? Sir Francis Drake was a great explorer who lived 450 years ago. And one day before he went out to explore for the Queen of England, actually the king at that time, uh, to try to conquer new worlds. He wrote a prayer. And I want you to read this prayer along with me. Disturb us, Lord, when we are too pleased with ourselves, when our dreams have come true because we have dreamed too little, when we arrive safely because we sailed too close to the shore.
disturb us, Lord, when with the abundance of things we possess, we have lost our thirst for the waters of life. Having fallen in love with life, we have ceased to dream of eternity. In our efforts to build a new earth, we have allowed our vision of a new heaven to dim. Disturb us, Lord, to dare more boldly, to venture on wilder seas where storms will show your mastery. Where losing sight of land, we shall find the stars. We ask you to push back the horizons of our hopes and to push back the future in strength, courage, hope, and love. This we ask in the name of our Captain, who is Jesus Christ. Disturb us. And so my question for you is this. Are you open? Are you willing to be disturbed? Or is everything comfortable right now? Everything's just kind of like you want it. You, you, you worked so hard to get to this point, and everything is nice and neat and tidy. Well, it's not for 143 million plus in the world. And we are family. Are you open to the possibility that the daughter who is going to bless you with five grandchildren right now is sitting in a dirty room in Lithuania waiting for you to come and get her? Are you open to the possibility that the son who will travel across the world to be with you as you die right now is in DHS custody in the state of Nebraska. Are you open? Are you willing to be disturbed? That's my question for you. We understand adoption, and we're thankful for it. All right, we, we are so thankful that God adopted us into his family. It's time to flow with that love, to not be a reservoir, but to let it flow to realize that because we have been adopted, we need to adopt. And that can mean literal adoption. Okay? That can mean sponsoring a child. That can mean plugging in with big brothers, big sisters. It can mean a lot of different things. Okay? But it means this. We are very much in tune with the heart of God on this issue. We pray about it. We serve. It may be that, it may be that our role is, is that we give $20,000 to that couple we know that wants to adopt and can't raise the funds. I don't know how God's going to speak to each of you on this issue. He'll do that over the next 40 days if you'll let him. My question is, are you open? Are you willing to be disturbed?